Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I am joined by David Barnard. David, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's going to be fun to chat. Yeah, yeah. Been following you on Twitter and obviously a big fan of Revenue Cat. So it's great to have you on. Before we get started, uh, I'll let you uh, talk about yourself and introduce yourself. Sure. I'm uh, David Bernard, a longtime indie developer. So I've run my company contract. Well, and actually founded the company as, as App Cubby and then had to switch names, which is an interesting story we might talk about. But been running that for 14 years now. So I kicked off my company right when after Steve Jobs left the stage in 2008, introducing the iPhone SDK. Uh, shipped, gosh, like 20-something apps, seen... I think it's like 6 million downloads at this point and all without ever hiring an employee, working with contractors and whatnot. And then the last two years, I actually joined Revenue Cat as developer advocate. And so Revenue Cat's a platform to help with payments for subscription apps. Uh, so it's, it's subscription app uh, infrastructure charts and SDKs for, for making in-app purchases easy. Yeah, so I run the Subclub podcast as part of that and actually have a private community. We're going to be opening up a waitlist to the Subclub community. Yeah, so stay stay pretty busy these days. Got a big update to my weather app uh, coming uh, hopefully in March. So yeah, busy as can be. Yeah, I, I know how that is. Yeah, I'll provide links in the show notes. Obviously, probably listeners of the podcast know about Revenue Cat. They're a sponsor of this show and they're a great service. So um, really... Happy to have another person from Revenue Cat on. We had Andy on, Andy Bodeo. So, yeah. I didn't even know we sponsored the show. It's kind of fun. Uh, we're at a point as a company where there's just so many different people doing so many different things. It's like I get to learn about them for the first time live. <laughs> so you've been doing indie development, you said now, like almost 15 years, I guess. What? How did you get started? Like, what did you do before that, I guess? So I was um, a recording engineer, actually. Ever since I was, gosh, like 10 or 12, I was into music and into like the tech side of music and got a little four-track recorder. I mean, I'm super old. So this was like the late 80s, early 90s. I got a little four-track tape recorder, um, Tascam. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, anybody who's like been into audio back in the 90s will remember these like little four track cassette task cam recorders. It was like the early kind of like home studio kind of stuff. Right, right. Uh, anyways, so I actually studied that at university and then was a freelance recording engineer for four or five years. And like there's still albums I've worked on in the in the app store, in the uh, iTunes store. Um, and streaming on Spotify and all that kind of stuff. But I got married and uh, didn't see my wife for like a year. <laughs> I was working, you know, like uh, noon to 2 a.m., typical like musician kind of studio life. And, you know, as we started thinking about having a family, it just became more and more clear that both financially, you know, as, as an in, in, independent uh, recording engineer, I wasn't making any money. <laughs> so both the like finances and the uh, time uh, just, you know, obviously weren't very compatible with with growing a family. And so I'd always been super into Apple and and tech and and got an iPhone early on, and it just seemed like such an incredible opportunity. Once the rumors of the iPhone SDK uh, started circling after the iPhone launched, and that I think it was a fall of. 2007 that Steve Jobs actually confirmed 
in some kind of letter you know, saying we will have an SDK. And then, of course, in March, he he introduced the SDK. So I, I founded my company immediately because I kind of, you know, saw the writing on the wall, you know, thought it'd be a great opportunity. I'd never like, you know, coded. I'd never, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like, I'd tinkered a lot, you know, like I'd learned HTML, JavaScript, you know, kind of simple stuff. I had uh, done a big project in FileMaker for my dad's company where I had to do some kind of high level scripting and coding kind of stuff. So I thought, oh, how, how hard will it be? I'll just I'll learn to code apps and like build an app. And I actually tried to get my buddy, uh, a, a shout out to my friend, Sean McMaines. He's an incredible coder. He now works for Deximity. And I tried to get him to partner with me. It, it, he and I joke now. I mean, you know, we're still friends and been friends for, gosh, like 25 years now. You know, how, how life may have been different had he uh, partnered with me, but he had, he had four kids and just busy at the time and, and didn't jump in. So I was like, ah, how hard can this be? So I I got the Hill of Gas coding book and I started going through it while simultaneously like talking to lawyers about getting the LLC spun wow. up and like okay. trying to figure out design resources and all this. And so about three weeks in, I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, being a, a legit programmer, especially, I mean, this was back when like the Hill Gas book was for um, Mac programming and the iPhone SDK was totally new and there was an uh, NDA in place. So there was like no resources. There was no, you couldn't even like post a blog post about like, you know, here's how you solve these one obscure bug or here's how you like provision to uh, um, uh, release a beta. It was like everything was was like you had to, you know, talk to random people on Twitter and like <laughs> have private conversations. Like there was nothing so I got a couple of weeks in and I was like, yeah, this is, I, I can't like learn all the new stuff and like become a programmer simultaneously and ship a product. And so I actually hired a contract programmer, Jonathan Johnson. Uh, he's actually still in the industry and kind of never looked back from there. And so a lot of people don't realize that I actually don't code. So it's been a combination of uh, partners and hired contractors over the years uh, to build the apps. And so I, I do find the indie developer label a little awkward sometimes because people just assume that I, I do actually code, but but I don't. Do you think that's it's, helped you not being a develop, not being a coder, but building apps? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know. And I've, I've talked about this a few times and, and thought a lot about it over the years. Uh, absolutely. And I wouldn't be, I don't think I'd, I'd, you know, have landed where I did with Revenue Cat, which I just, you know, love the company, love the the product we're building, love the team. Like it, it's just been like a, a fantastic place to, to work. I never thought I'd enjoy a job. <laughs> never thought I'd get a job. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, what ended up happening is that because I, didn't ever learn to code. And again, it's like part of me thinks, oh, you know, a hundred different times I could have like taken a few months and done a boot camp or something. But because I never did that, I, I kind of had more free time than I would have had I coded. And so that's where I spent a ton of time studying the app market, like browsing the top list, like mm-hmm. writing blog posts, thinking about marketing. And like, it, it just kind of forced me to think about and do all of those other things in the time that I would otherwise be coding, where I think a lot of any developers who who are so focused on just fixing bugs and and writing the app themselves, it, it's really hard to kind of switch hats and then go, okay, well, you know, why am I building this? What right. what you know value does a product deliver? You know, what's going on in the app store economy that I can leverage? Like what features or you know, like you have to really kind of 
take off that you know programmer hat and put on all these different hats to to really build a business and that's where i i do think it it worked out really well over the years for me to be so focused on all those other things without without you know being head down in xcode 12 hours a day like you know some of my partners have been over the years hey folks i want to let you know about a sponsor for today's episode revenue cat RevenueCat has been a fantastic sponsor, and they're the perfect sponsor for our audience, developers like yourself. It makes it easy for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases and subscriptions, whether you're doing iOS, Android, or the web. There's no server code required. With a few lines of codes, you can get in-app purchase infrastructure analytics and integrations without managing servers. No need to check certificates or receipts. RevenueCat does that all for you. Are you integrating with several different web services? RevenueCat can do that. Do you need really important reports? RevenueCat has an awesome dashboard worth checking out. If you didn't watch our episode with Andrew Bodeo about what RevenueCat does and how complex in-app purchases can be, then you should definitely take some time to watch that episode. He goes over how challenging in-app purchases can be and why RevenueCat is such a great help for developers out there. If you're indie or your enterprise, definitely take take a look at RevenueCat and what kind of services they have to offer. It's very reasonably priced, no matter who you are. So whether you need an in-depth dashboard, customer lists, filters, or segments for your different customer bases, are you doing anything with the Amazon App Store or other services? Are you providing on other platforms? Take some time, go to the link in the show notes below, and give RevenueCat a try. It's going to be really easy for you to integrate and get started. And thank you, Revenue Cat, for sponsoring today's episode. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, we've talked about this with a lot of our other indie guests, but also like, I feel like my vice is like, I love the craft of coding and like, I'll just be coding away without realizing like, okay, what's the end here? Like, is there actually people who are going to use this? Asking those like marketing questions that developers like don't want to ask because they just want to spend 12 hours in Xcode and like it's almost like a handicap in a way like of just like wanting to be a coder and knowing so much about that and then to have to shove one more thing into your brain uh like marketing it can be a real challenge so yeah I can I can imagine might might actually be helpful (laughs) in a lot of ways yeah yeah and then you know even even things like you know, press, you know, when I'm not head down in, in coding all the time, you know, I've, I've written so much over the years and talked to enough people in the press where, you know, they'll DM me and say, Hey, can you give us a comment on this? And I'm not head down in some like deep project. And so I can just, you know, jump in and give them a response. And that's, you know, built a lot of relationships over the years, uh, and gotten, you know, and then, and then help get attention for my apps and get, you know, my name out there and stuff like that. And so, yeah, there's just there's so many ways I think that that it just works and and I mean, this is another thing that's been fun about um joining Revenue Cat is is realizing that you know, as teams start to grow, you can hire more and more specialized folks. And so what I've seen as like we hired uh Jens is our head of product. We hired him almost a year ago and 
like I've been a product manager for 14 years now, right? I like run my own apps and like I've got backlogs and all this stuff. But like I'm a terrible product manager and like Jens <laughs> is a real professional product manager and does an incredible job. Like I've learned so much just watching how he operates inside Revenue Cat. And so what's interesting to kind of spin it all the way back is that as an indie developer wearing all these different hats, you, you do have to recognize that you're not going to be an incredible product manager if if like two hours of your time is spent on product management. Uh, and then you're not going to be an incredible marketer if like you tack it on to the end of, of like, okay, I've spent six months building this app. Now, like it's a week before launch and I'm going to be a marketer. It's like, no, like you can do, you can get reasonably good at, different aspects of it. And these are all things you should strive to get better at, but it's like recognize your strengths and weaknesses and then, and and then hit those 80, 20 things. Like, you know, don't think you're going to be this amazing marketer in like five hours the week before you're launching, like, you know, think about it ahead and strategically like figure out the kind of highest leverage things you can do. And then, so then what was interesting for me then is that because I wasn't programming and because I wasn't designing either, although I've, you know, I've tinkered enough in Sketch and Photoshop over the years to, I mean, like there's a lot of my artwork that ships in my apps just by <laughs> default, uh, where I'll, I'll kind of modify the designer's artwork to just, you know, get things done. But because I wasn't actively doing those two things, I could actually get a little bit better and be a little more focused on the business side, the marketing side and other things. And so while I don't consider myself a great product manager or a great marketer or a great PR person or a great whatever, I at least am better at some of those things because I just had more, you know, at bats, more reps, more focus on it over the years. And so so even from that standpoint, kind of having me plus a designer plus a developer it is kind of how it's almost always gone with my apps is mm-hmm. that is that, that that team of three can be really strong. And even though none of us are necessarily focusing on any one app full time as a team of three, but each of us can specialize. And so, yeah, right. I think I think it really has been a benefit over the years. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. How do you what was your process of going from an idea to like actually starting to build and put the app in the app store? Like, how did you filter those ideas out? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've I've done a pretty terrible job at over the years in some ways. So and I'll give you a couple of examples that I, I learned a ton from. One idea I had really early on was to build a better Wikipedia app. And I thought, well, you know, all these Wikipedia apps, you know, there's a market for them. People use them. But all these Wikipedia apps are just web views. Like, there's there's so much better experience that we could bring to the market with a with a natively rendered wiki text Wikipedia app, and that seemed like a great idea. You know, there were several successful Wikipedia readers at the time. I mean, this was like 2010. It was actually the plan was to launch it with the iPad in whatever that was 2010, I think. And so it seemed like a great idea. It seemed like there was a market, and but but it was but the scope of it was just way beyond what I even understood at the time, and so. We spun our wheels and I ended up losing $50,000 on that project between designers, multiple programmers, and other stuff that I hired out building up to it. And we just got to this point with the product where I realized like I could put another $50,000 in and finish it. One, I didn't have $50,000 sitting around. Like this was, I was like, 
you know, 5,000 this month because Gas Cubby did really well and, and, you know, 2,000 next month because Trip Cubby did really well. And so I was kind of reinvesting all the profits. And so I realized, yeah, I could take every penny of profit for the next year and keep dumping it in and get to a final product. But then what I realized is, is that the likelihood of getting a return on finishing that project just wasn't strong. You know, this was back when, you know, it was one time upfront purchase for an right. app. And you were just relying on the market growing. And so it's like, and you're competing we... against Wikipedia themselves. Like, yeah, actually, yeah. at the time, I don't remember if Wikipedia had their own app. Okay. Uh, and, and, and maybe in the intervening time, that was another factor that came about. Yeah. You know, so that, that was one we're just recognizing as an indie developer, you know, with limited resources. I mean, you know, 50,000 sounds like a big budget, but, but it was limited. And it, so we just, bit off way more than we could chew. And so on the flip side, you know, two of my more kind of successful experiments was this Kaleidoscope app. And it was like just a total, like, I mean, literally a 99 cent app, like we just shipped it for 99 cents and it it didn't do especially well, but it was a very low investment. It was like, let's see if this can work, like see if anybody likes it. Um, And so that app flopped, it was called Kaleidovid, and it was like this video kaleidoscope thing, uh, which was actually, I mean, it's a really fun little app. But we then took that code base. And when Apple announced the iPhone 4 with the front-facing camera, it's like, what interesting things can we do with the front-facing camera? You know, we'd already worked on a photo app. We had all this code around photo apps. And so I came up with the, the mirror idea of like, just, you know, let's just see if this front-facing camera, like you can check your teeth, you can do makeup, like, yeah. you know, maybe this thing will be interesting. And that that's actually been one of my most successful apps was just leveraging Apple's new frameworks in a in a unique way or, or new and this time it was new hardware capabilities. It's you know been a long time since they've introduced new hardware capabilities. I think maybe NFC reading was the last one off the top of my head, but it was just like let's leverage this and let's do it in a in a way that we're reusing a bunch of code. So I mean I think it took Leighton Duncan was actually my my partner on that one. And I think it took him just like 10, 12 hours to to repurpose the code for us nice. to launch this app. And so so that that's where I think really thinking through like, you know, what's the real scope of this? What's the market opportunity? So if there is a big market opportunity, you can potentially, you know, put more time and resources into it. But as an indie, sometimes you do just need to look for that low-hanging fruit and say, okay, you know. This is a fun idea. I don't know if it'll get traction, but let's put a month into it and cap it at that and like go for it and see if there's like some sign of product market fit. Right. But on the flip side, I mean, there are great ways, and I've never been good at this, but there are great ways to try and better understand the potential for a market uh, ahead of time. So, like uh, Zach Shaked, he did this thing where he was trying to build, uh, make a hundred thousand build a $100,000 grossing app within six months. And so he started it the way I think a lot more people should start it. And this is like putting the business hat on and really thinking through, like, how can I show some sign of product market fit before I even start coding? And then that gives you kind of better kind of proof of concept to then invest more time and money into it and build a deeper product that you kind of know, have a better idea is going to work. So what he did was he posted on Reddit, anybody like the idea, I forget exactly how I word it or whatever, but it was a zero cooking meal prep app. 
And so, so he, he just, you know, he was a bachelor and just tired of like having to make food all the time. And so she came up with this idea, like you can just buy like canned food, frozen food, dump it all in a thing. And then you can just throw that in the microwave. And so before he'd even written a line of code, he had a huge Reddit thread of people like super excited. Uh, somebody, yeah. a, a life hacker actually picked it up and it got news. And so like, and, and actually he didn't build that. So somebody should probably still, still go out there and build it. And so there are ways to kind of prove out a concept and like, you know, just, and, and people are so precious about ideas. Like there are some ideas where like, if somebody else could beat you to the punch, if it is something like super unique or different or whatever, but look at what happened with him. It's like he built, he he came up with a great idea. He posted it to Reddit. It got picked up in Lifehacker and still nobody has built that app. So I think like sometimes we're maybe a little too precious about these ideas and you think uh, we need to spend six months in the dark building this thing, but you're building this thing you don't even know people actually want. And then I've already gone uh, probably way longer than... Well, I was just going to say, like, being first isn't even worth it. Like, you know... Sometimes sometimes, it is, sometimes it isn't. Right, yeah, because sometimes being first, that might be a good indication of whether something's going to be successful or not. And, like, also, like, sometimes being first, you don't quite hit that, that market fit, right? Like, nobody knows. I mean, whatever. Look at Google Glass, look at mobile phones, like, all that stuff. Like, like, being first isn't always the best. The one last thing I want to hit on, because I think a lot of India developers make this mistake over and over and over again. I almost made it 2020. I was looking at the wallpaper app category. I was like, man, look at these wallpaper apps making a million bucks a month. And like, there's multiple wallpaper apps just doing crazy numbers. So I was like, I I just, I got to build a wallpaper app. Like I can build a better app. Like these apps are terrible. It was just like classic, like, you know, if I build a, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come Come, build a better mousetrap kind of thinking. And this is where I think the disconnect happens is that a lot of folks who kind of do that surface level market research, it's like, oh, well, there's a market to be had in the wallpaper space. And they leave it at that. Like, oh, there's all these apps, you know, I'm just going to build the best wallpaper app ever. And then that's going to be great. What I did at that point was then to go download all these wallpaper apps and start to understand why are they making a million dollars a month? And then what I learned really quickly and you know, tweeted about at the time and have tweeted about multiple times over the years is that they were super scammy. They had like dark patterns. They had like $10, $20 a week subscriptions. They were just super scammy apps. And so, and, and then like the longer you've been in the industry, you start to like see patterns and see some of this underbelly. Costa has been calling out a lot of it on Twitter and I have over the years too. Uh, I actually even had a blog post in like 2017, 2018, kind of, uh, it was called like how to, how to game the app store. And so what you start to see is, is these patterns with these wallpaper apps is they were probably buying reviews. And so that's why they had an almost five-star review, even though they were super scammy is because they were actually buying reviews. And then they were probably dumping a ton of money into ads. Like at the time you could, it's getting harder to do this because it's harder to track. But at the time, you know, before uh, app tracking transparency, you know, you could spin up Facebook ads and have really granular detail on, on your return on ad spend. And so these apps making a million dollars a month, they may have been spending you know, seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars a month to get that million dollars, and yeah. may have had a team of twenty in Eastern Europe or or the Philippines or China or somewhere 
right where they were they were putting a ton of time and money into it that you just you can't see on the surface and so when you're doing market research don't just look at the surface and think oh this app's making you know a million dollars a month i can build a better mousetrap and and capture some of that revenue really try and understand what and this is what's so hard is like Oftentimes, you just don't know what they're doing behind the scenes to make those numbers that you see on Sensor Tower. And then keep in mind, Sensor Tower, App Annie, and all these people, it's like they're not necessarily accurate anyway. So it may not even be a million a month. It may be 700 a month. And then you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, both you know, dark patterns you can see, dark patterns you can't see, cheating on the App Store, massive marketing budgets, like there's so much behind the scenes that right. it's hard to understand. And so when you're doing this market research, just don't fall prey to the, you know, hey, this app's making money. I can I can build something better. Hey folks, I want to let you know about one of the sponsors of today's episode, App Figures. App Figures is the leading platform for mobile app makers to track and grow their apps, packed with tools for reporting, optimization, and competitive intelligence. If you watched our episode a few months ago with Ariel, you know how important it is to optimize your apps for the App Store. No matter how great your app is, if it's not noticed, it's not really worth your time and money to spend on. If you're making money, for instance, with subscriptions, you need to know and you need to stay on top of the numbers so that you can figure out what to do next. App Figures has worked all this out. If you're a developer, sometimes some of this app store stuff can be a distraction from creating and designing a really good app. But by bringing your core metrics to the forefront and calculating key data sets like MRR and churn, they make it easy to understand what's happening and why. And that gives you more time to really build your app and really design it well and grow your subscription business. If you're not sure where to get started analyzing your subscriptions, then check out the guides and the videos at appfigures.com. They have a really great YouTube channel I'm going to post in the links below. There, they do things like This Week in Apps, where Ariel gives you updates on different trends of what's going on in the App Store as they change, both based on the customers you have, but also based on changes to the App Store as they happen. And also, once you get to appfigures.com, you have no excuse not to give them a try. They have a free trial available that will help you get started on building your audience and help understand how to get noticed in the App Store today. If you like it, then you can use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. You have no excuse not to give this a try. Again, use the special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. I want to thank the folks at AppFigures for sponsoring today's episode. What are some like good smells to know whether a certain market is just filled with scammy apps and it's like not worth, worth your time? Well, what I've seen lately is that most of the big keywords end up kind of getting filled up with with those sorts of apps. I mean, not always like super scammy. And one of the things I've been super impressed with, to be honest, is some of, some of the apps that were really scammy early on to gain traction have actually turned into really great apps. Like the weather category is a great example of this. Like there were some really scammy weather apps and there still are, but some of those uh, scammy weather apps have actually turned into legitimately great apps. So, but the pattern I've seen is that one of the things that helps a lot is getting traction in keywords so that you can get free organic downloads. And so part of the strategy is like, you know, pick a keyword that tons of people are searching for, you know, weather, wallpapers, 
widgets. Like, you know, there, there's a bunch of widget apps out there now that have, have both cloned and then even innovative, innovated from what David Smith did with Widget Smith. So kind of pick a cat, they pick a category that like has that, that kind of organic traction. Because once you start dumping paid dollars on, if you can climb in the search results and start getting free, it's like this virtuous loop. And so if you're buying reviews, if you're spending a ton of money on ads, if you have a halfway decent product, you can often get pretty high up in the search results for these really popular keywords and actually kind of amplify the money you're spending on ads. So, th- so those kind of like high value keywords where there's a lot of organic traffic tend to be a lot more crowded than the kind of more niche keywords. But, but really, I mean, you just have to like, you know, spend the time and go download the apps and understand, like, you know, look at the top 20 apps yeah. in the category. Do a competitive analysis. Do a competitive analysis, but then do that within the back of your mind that as much as you think you might know why they're succeeding or You're how right. they're succeeding, you probably don't know why or how they're actually succeeding. Yeah, and one yeah. of the most frustrating things about all this is like, I've told all this to Apple multiple times to help them better like spot some of the more scammy apps and to, and, and, and the frustrating thing about this is that you do often end up with some category leaders that are just terrible experiences for users where there's just, you know, ads constantly dark patterns and like all this stuff. And so it's like Apple as a curator of the app store should do a better job of incentivizing um, developers to build really great products and that, that building a great product will help accelerate things. And, and it's not a, like, if you build a great product, like Apple should just magically make you the top result. Like that's like not at all what I'm saying. Right. But what happens is you just, you do end up with a lot of scammier apps at the top of these popular keywords. Whereas like ideally the incentives around the app store, if they better policed the fake reviews, if they better policed a lot of aspects of the kind of dark patterns and stuff like that is that you, you would hopefully end up with better products at the top. And that's where it's like, you can go to almost any category, download the top 10 and just be like, wow, these are actually pretty crappy apps. Like, why are they making so much money? It's like, well, they're doing the stuff that you're not going to do, or you're going to risk getting yourself kicked out of the app store for doing, but they're not getting kicked out of the app store for doing it. Usually. I mean, at this point I kind of like look at a, blog post for people to recommend an app than rather like search on the app store just because I'm so afraid of like what could be out there. What do you think is the future of Apple's relationship with Indies? Because it like, I don't know, like, like <laughs> the app review thing, it's like, it's kind of a cluster on both sides, right? Cause it's like, you have a great app, you follow all the rules, you get denied. And then you see, like you said, all these scammy apps that are just like cheating the system. Like I said, I, I'm not confident about going on the app store and looking for stuff on there. I'd rather have somebody personally recommend it because I've been, you know, naive and I'd go on I'm like, okay, let's just search for something. And then you pull it down. And it's like 500 ads on it. And like, like you could tell this is just some crappy like app built in a, in a day. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like that to me is like for all the controversies there are with the app store, that to me is the biggest one is like this excuse, like the app store is a great gatekeeper of, of good apps and good quality. But the reality is you just kind of, a lot of indies don't have great experiences dealing with app store review. And then like we see all this garbage in the app store at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, th- this is a tough one. And uh, I mean, I-, I see both sides very, I mean, just as long as I've been in the industry and, you know, talking to people at Apple and and talking to so many indies and then now at Revenue Cat talking to companies of all sizes, I think there's there's kind of a forest for the trees issue on both sides is that as indies, it's like sometimes we feel like we our apps are the best and the most well-crafted and should get more attention. And, and at the end of the day, often that's not as true as we'd like to believe. And so, and then, and then from Apple's side, I mean, I do think that there is a little bit of there, not a little bit, there's a lot of tension in, you know, anytime Apple kind of cracks down, then you end up with more rejections. You end up with more hassle with review. And so it's like, we're, we as a community are simultaneously saying, Apple, you should crack down more, but then getting pissed off when our apps get rejected. So so it's like, what do you want? Do you want the app store to be more tightly curated? And if that's the case, like we are going to have to deal with more app review rejections and other issues that are just a natural result of that. Because if they're going to catch the other, like it, it's just a hard process to get right. But my frustration with Apple is that they're there are a lot of things that they're just not doing. Like, I mean, Gruber's talked about this. Costa's talked about this. Like a lot of people in the community have talked about, you know, if they just started from the top thousand apps and had like their top reviewers go and, and watch for apps that are climbing the ranks and, and go through and look for these dark patterns and look for these fake reviews. Because once you see them, they're, they're really easy to spot. And it's like they, they just haven't built out the systems for that. And then, I mean, as much money as Apple has made on the App Store, it feels like they continually underinvest in some of these areas. Like I know, you know, App Review, uh, it was revealed in the Epic lawsuit that it's only like 300 people. And to be honest, like, I thought it was like 2,000 people. Yeah. And then it was revealed in the lawsuit too that that they're they're hiring like really junior low level like they're hiring people out of Apple retail and stuff and it's like this should be a more sophisticated role with more sophisticated people with higher pay with more you know knowledge and and, and so that's the disconnect for me is like okay Apple like you know you're making a ton of money this is super valuable I'm still pretty bought into the whole like walled garden thing yeah me too I just want them to like like do a better job at it. Yeah, I really, I, I don't want side loading. I don't want alternate app stores. It's just going to be a mess to deal with. And like, you know, on top of it all, it's built on iTunes, right? Like it's, it's put together with duct tape and like, oh, you know, it's for selling albums in 2003, but now for iPods and now it's like being used for this major infrastructure where millions and billions of dollars are going through. And so, so as far as like Apple's relationship with Indies specifically, in a lot of ways, I feel like they they do a great job at, at a lot of the stuff they do, and I, I think we don't maybe even give them enough credit. Playing both sides here because I'm simultaneously incredibly frustrated with Apple in so many ways. So, like, not to discount, you know, not to discount all those frustrations and ways that as a multi-trillion-dollar company, I think they should be doing better by indie developers. On the flip side. Yeah, they really do do a lot. And if you if you look at like featured lists, if you look at, you know, they really try and seek out the well-crafted apps to feature. Now, now here's like back to like the frustration, being featured matters less and less these days because fewer people are browsing the app store. And so it, it's like they think they're doing indies this big favor by featuring you. And, and it helps certainly, 
but it, it's just like less and less of a favor these days. Like back, you know, uh, five, eight years ago, you know, you got featured and it could mean, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in a single week and like make a huge difference to like sustainability and everything. And these days it, it's just not driving those kind that kind of volume. And so I want to ask one question about that. Cause you mentioned this earlier about the front facing camera. How much do you think it helps nowadays to get a day one app out that, fe- that uses some feature either new to the OS or new to the device? So like, and, and that that's actually a great example. I mean, if you look at the last five major launches of new features, so, you know, with, with each major iOS release that has, you know, big new features, Apple puts a lot behind these well-crafted indie apps, you know, widget Smith got featured, but like widget Smith got featured for being day one, but it really blew up because of TikTok. Right. TikTok's been a big helper in that space uh, recently. Yeah, and it, for them specifically, but it's really hard to like make make it go viral. It's right, like that's right. that's a very hit or miss kind of thing. So so Apple does put weight behind it, and they do feature a lot of like up and coming and indie and stuff like that. But it's a very similar thing in that it's only going to go so far. And that that's the Widget Smith example was like had Widget Smith not gone viral on TikTok, it you know, it probably would have gotten, you know, tens of thousands of downloads from having been featured. And so it's like that that's not enough marketing to really get something off the ground and like, you know, get it to the point of being a full-time job. Yes, you'll get, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of downloads by getting featured. And so the way I the way I think about that kind of day one app thing is that it doesn't hurt, certainly, unless you're doing it at the expense of other features that would actually have better product market fit. So like if you're throwing some crazy, like um, <laughs> Carrot's a great example. Uh, I, I've known Brian for years. You know, he did this AR thing because Apple was really pushing AR. Well, it got featured a ton or whatever, but but it was like very, very, very gimmicky feature. It didn't really enhance the experience of the app. It's not like anybody's going to, use that feature consistently. It's not delivering additional value to your subscribers other than this like, you know, quick fun thing. So Carrot Weather get benefit for being day one with AR. Yeah. But it, you know, if you look at the history of Carrot, like That's why is Carrot say. such an incredible weather app? Yeah. It's because dude <laughs> busts it and builds incredible features. Like, I mean, I'm still in the weather category and, and working on my weather 3.0 update. And it, it just watching his pace of feature development, like he's winning because he's just he's for you know seven years now just consistently continued building a better and better and better and better app. And so if you're building these day one features at at the sacrifice of building a better app, then you're probably better off just focusing on building a better app, especially as an indie where your time and resources are limited. If it's something that truly enhances your app, like building a really fantastic widget that is actually like a fantastic experience and you get featured for something that's actually a fantastic experience, that's when like it can even be that much more helpful versus like just throwing these like kind of gimmicky features in there in hopes that Apple's going to feature you. Hey folks, I want to let you know about a sponsor for today's episode, Sentry. Sentry is the way to track errors and performance monitoring for your apps. With over 1 million developers and 80,000 organizations already shipped, 
Sentry has helped developers like yourself know whenever something is going wrong. They have some great new articles out on things like distributed tracing, front-end work that you're doing on, and they have great tools for iOS developers as well as server-side Swift. Take some time and go ahead and check out Sentry today and help get your app up and running and integrate it with some awesome error tracking and great performance reports. Go to Sentry.io and use the link in the show notes below to get started. Thank you again to Sentry for sponsoring today's episode. And widgets are a great example of that as opposed to AR. It's like, yeah, like AR is not is, but like widgets, like, like totally makes sense for a lot of people because you want to see that data on the home screen for most apps. So I wanted to ask, go back to the question, the hard question. What do you think like the future is going to be? Like, do you think, obviously I think one of the big monkey wrenches obviously is the, is the pandemic because now we don't have dubbed up DC in person. So now we've done these like dev tech talk things like lately, like in the last, is it like in the next week or so they're doing a lot of marketing stuff with like product pages and things like that. So they definitely like try to help indies. Do you think there's like any, do you think there's going to be any change in that relationship? Because we're far away from like the days of 2007, 2008, where you could just put anything out and make money. Yeah. I mean, I I think the best thing Apple can do for indies is to just keep building a better app store. It's like better aligning incentives, better, better policing the scammy stuff. Because then it gives you a better chance to shine. But at the end of the day, I mean, I th- I think there is a... Like I was saying earlier, I mean, I, I think there's a tension in that, you know, Apple runs this multi-billion dollar marketplace now. And in any kind of marketplace, I mean, you know, think about... Amazon sellers, you know. Oh yeah, I've, I watched a whole video about Amazon reviews, fake reviews. It's yeah. miserable. It, yeah, and then you know, and the internet more broadly, it's like you know, you can you can build something great and it you know get zero attention. So should Apple better align incentives in the App Store? Absolutely. Can they you know magically wave a wand and like? help indies be more successful. I don't think that should be the goal specifically. I think that if Apple really, you know, it's so frustrating. I've talked about this over and over again on on the Subclub podcast and in tweets and everything else. You know, if if you dropped Apple, if you erased Apple execs memory and dropped them into inside Apple today and said, you know, what should the App Store look like for 2022 and beyond? You know, it's clear that even with AR glasses and whatever else is coming down the pipe, that apps are going to continue to be incredibly important for decades to come. I mean, just just like, you know, you would have thought in the 90s that, you know, how long is this like, you know, web page thing going to really be going? And I mean, you know, 30 years later, it's still going. Uh, you know, desktop apps, similar. It's like, you know, desktop apps are still incredibly important. So the the mobile app stores, even if if they're augmented by augmented reality and otherwise, are going to be incredibly important for decades to come. And so, I wish, you know, Apple could take a step back and think, you know, what what should the app store look like for the next decade? And I think if they did those kind of exercises inside of Apple and really built for that next decade, 
that's what would actually be the best for indie developers versus like and better aligning those incentives, better policing, better curation, you know, maintaining the the trust of customers that that they will actually go browse and search more instead of relying on on friends and searching the web. It's like if they, if they can just keep better building a better app store, that's going to create more opportunities for indies. And then the indie developer community needs to, um, you know, think think more about about marketing, about business, about positioning, about PR, about, you know, all these things that historically, you know, we, we haven't necessarily been, been very good at (laughs) as a community. And instead of only focusing on the product and thinking, well, if we build a better mousetrap, uh, that's enough, you know, we need to realize that that's only one part of the puzzle. What do you think are, is like, besides obviously building the product without seeing that there's a market there, what's, you think the biggest mistake you've seen indies do before before putting their product out? Probably the biggest is not thinking about distribution and attention. It's you know at a very fundamental level, and this kind of piggybacks on our conversation earlier about ideas and like what apps to build and market research and everything else like that. Is that you need to have some understanding of how your app is going to be seen. So if you're building a Wikipedia app, like how how are people going to find out about this and think at that like fundamental level before you even start coding your Wikipedia app. And if your answer is, well, Apple's going to feature me, well, yeah, you're going to get thousands or tens of thousands of downloads and then it's just going to drop to nothing. And then, okay, well, app store search. Well, App Store search is really hard to get traction in, but that is potentially a strategy. Like if there are some niche keywords that have reasonably good traction that you can go after and actually, you know, get high in search results, that's one way to get attention, but it's really hard. Is there going to be social sharing, you know, like a widget smith, you know, people were posting screenshots and then people were asking, well, how'd you do that? Well, widget smith. So there was like some natural virality, but it's like you can try and you can think that's going to happen. Like in my perfect weather app, it was actually called perfect weather in 2013, I think is when we first launched, we had a gift sharing. I thought this was going to be amazing that uh, people would share gifts of the radar animation loop. And maybe in the whole history of that feature, like a hundred people shared it. You needed to make it into a meme. You should have made it into a meme on the weather <laughs> yeah. app, radar app. <laughs> so you, you want to invest in these and experiment with these kind of features, but don't count on any one thing like that being this like golden ticket. Uh, I hear a lot of developers talk about referrals. Well, if, if if I can build this referral system, one user can invite 10 and then they get a free month. And then like this is going to be like this magic marketing thing for me. But, but what you realize when you really do the math is that, you know, in order for one person to send the referral, first you have to like, get their attention inside the app. So maybe 10% of your users are even going to see it and then take action. I mean, that'd be on the high end. You know, so realistically, you're talking one or 2%. Then, you know, one or 2% actually share the referral. Then if they share it to 10, 15 people, maybe if you're lucky, 5% actually take action on that. And so basically, you know, you need to have tens of thousands of people in the app before a referral program will even get you hundreds of downloads, much less 
tens of thousands of downloads. It's really hard. So you look at, yeah, oh, Uber, you know, was super successful. Well, they were giving away money and they're just right. a totally different app. Right. And like you can't, Apple even prevents, there's certain rules and I'm still a little confused about what exactly they're going to allow and what they're not. But they're, they've rejected some apps for giving a discount to referrals. So like you can't give somebody who's coming into the app a better deal than is normally available in the app. There's some kind of stuff like that that App Review is picky about that I still don't understand. But anyways, point being like referrals are not this magic unlock. They can give you like incrementally a huge lift once you start getting to scale. But just think like, okay, press. Like, you know, this is something I've leaned on a lot. So press is great. You're going to get a boost if you can get into the press. One, it's really hard to do. Two, it's like getting featured. It's like you're going to get some downloads and then it's just going to die off. So what is going to get you attention over the long run? And just building a better product is not enough. And so so this is where, you know, that example I gave earlier of cooking app, it's that, you know, there was like already kind of a community forming around this where people were talking and sharing it, it organically because it's something people really cared about. And so if you can find those kind of ways to get attention, if you can find a niche where you can get keywords, if you can find some kind of sustainable marketing channel. Another great one from the Subclub blog or podcast was um, we did this episode with Alex Ross um, from the Greg Plant Care app. And, and really early on, they were trying to figure out like how, how do we how do we reach our like target market and our, our, our best possible customers? And it, it's super obvious in hindsight, but it's, you got to sit down and do the exercise. You know, they figured out that somebody buying a plant is, is the perfect like moment to introduce a plant care app. It's like they're spending money and they want to have success with this plant. Otherwise they wouldn't have spent 30, 50, a hundred dollars on this plant. And so they created these little postcards with a QR code and a little like marketing pitch and distributed them to nurseries and did partnerships. And what was amazing about that is that the nurseries benefited because if somebody has a better experience with the plant, they're not going to return it. They're going to go buy more plants. And so it was a really easy pitch to these nurseries like, hey, include this card and your you know customers are, are going to have better success with their plant. And it's a, it was just a very good win-win. And, you know, he shared on the podcast, that's how they got like their first like 40, 50,000 downloads. They didn't do a ton of paid marketing. So if you can, as an indie, think beyond, you know, Facebook ads and, and app store search and some of these other things and just find creative ways to get attention for your app because it's not, you're not just going to launch it. And, and I mean, yes, you know, sometimes like Widget Smith, it went viral, but you, you can't depend on that kind of stuff. So if you're going to spend months investing in this, like have some kind of a plan, like how are people going to find out about it and be realistic about it? Don't, you know, and that, that's something I think I continually fall for myself is that is there's this sense of, well, you know, People are going to get really excited about it, and and that's how it's going to like get marked. That doesn't work. So, and, and then you know the paid advertising is really hard to get dialed in. Like you, you have to have your product really well dialed in to go spend a dollar on Facebook and have any hopes of getting that dollar back, much less making two, three dollars on that. So, I th- I think it's more important for indies to really think through that that attention piece. How are people going to find this app? 
and you need a certain amount of that to even find product market fit, right? Like you're building this app that you don't know if people really care about and care enough about to pay for. And so having ways to get those first users in and refine the product and listen to the feedback and keep building, but then having some idea in mind of how I'm going to sustain some level of attention for this app. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying about when you see an app being successful, there could be some missing signals about how they're spending their money or how they're marketing their app where you as a developer are looking at it and going, Oh, how do they use that? How do they create that animation? It's 50 Y. It's like, that's, yeah, that's besides the point. David, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? Um, not off the top of my head. If you don't have any other questions. No, I'm good. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it was a great chat. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, well, I, I rant a lot and retweet a lot of really random stuff on Twitter. <laughs> people seem to enjoy it enough to keep following me. So Dr. Bernard on Twitter. I do, as I mentioned, you know, host the Subclub podcast. We're very focused on uh, on subscription apps, but talking to like top apps in the industry. And I, I do, I mean, I already gave like, gosh, three or four examples in this conversation. I think there's a lot that indies can learn from some of these bigger apps who have bigger teams, you know, experimenting on product market fit. But then there are some lessons that you can take away from some of that, even if you're kind of working at a smaller scale without as big of a team. So the Subclub podcast, I think, is is really a fantastic resource. And I try and really vary the guests and, and get like a lot of different kind of like it'd be easy to just talk to a bunch of founders, but it, like I'm trying to get like you know marketing people who are focused on like marketing apps and trying to get um, different people from different industries uh, related kind of fields uh, on the podcast. And then I do blog occasionally at Revenue Cat, trying to trying to pick that up this year. Uh, and I do typically kind of talk more. Like there's a few good pl- blog posts on there you can look back on, like how to sell an app is a really interesting one. So if you're thinking like, yeah, I want to build this app and maybe, you know, we flip just it someday. We referenced that one on the last episode with Jordan. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, I talked to Jordan. He he actually reached out to me personally when, when he was trying to sell his app and yeah, had a, had some great chats. I think that maybe even been why I wrote that post. I was like, well, I should just, <laughs> you're the like, inspiration. He was asking me all these questions. I was like, well, I should just write it down. <laughs> And then some others like, you know, uh, subscribers are your true fans. That was one I wrote a few years ago. Like I, I kind of write more like kind of thought pieces around, you know, how to think about the industry and stuff like that. And so uh, hoping to blog a little bit more. So check out the Revenue Cat blog. But yeah, that's about it. Thank you so much for coming on, David. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a fun chat. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to share uh, or subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. Post a review on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to. This has been an awesome series. Uh, it's been great to end it here with, with David on indie development. I'm hoping to get another episode out. Our next one might be about the supposed March event. So we'll be talking about that. Stay tuned. Thank you again. And I will talk to you later. Bye.